Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to do a brief reading from Ephesians chapter 2 before we move on to Matthew chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 today, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So peace out, man. Peace be unto you. If I could do a Jewish accent, I would say shalom. Or I am competing in this beauty pageant today to promote my cause, which is world peace and other stuff. We're familiar with these phrases. We may be familiar with these symbols, Aubrey, the peace symbol, or the next one, the dove. We might recognize these men in this picture if you're of a certain age, Jimmy Carter, Anwar Sadat, and Menachem Begin. I think that was the 70s. And also these men, more recent time, looks like Morgan Freeman and Terry Bradshaw, but... <laughs> It's Mandela and de Klerk. These men were all honored for their work in reconciling long-standing ethnic and social divides. Their work earned each of these men the Nobel Peace Prize. So what does this mean for us today when we look at this verse, blessed are the peacemakers? We can go away from this slide. We come to this statement in our scripture in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Happy are they. To be congratulated are they. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
This is a momentous statement, is it not, to be called the sons of God? Now, last week, Chad spoke to us about the blessings of being pure in heart. The transition is natural to this week's call to be makers of peace, because from showing mercy to having a pure heart, the Beatitudes stay within the heart of man and the actions that pour forth from that heart. As James chapter 4 says, we can show James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Conflict is within each of our hearts. This conflict robs us from peace in our lives. This conflict and quarreling creates an ever-present need for peacemaking in every aspect of our life and in our relationships with each other. But most importantly, this lack of peace exists between man and God, and this lack of peace must be resolved. So what is this peace that we are to make? And what is the manner in which we can make or wage peace? And why is it so important? We'll talk about that today. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you would give us your mind today as we look at your word. We pray that you would um, allow our hearts to be open, that we would uh, see the great things that you have done for us, that we would see how the gospel transforms us and allows us to make peace, to wage peace in every aspect of our lives, and how you get glory from that. I pray that you would strengthen me, allow me to speak clearly and with focus, and allow me to uh, convey to um, this church body what you have laid on my heart for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first of all, we're going to start with the meaning of peace. What is, what is peace? And perhaps we can start by describing what it is not. So first of all, peace is not merely the absence of conflict. Peace is not merely the absence of conflict. For some of us, depending on your personality, it may be very easy to take on the role of someone who avoids conflict at all costs. You might swallow that hurt. You might avoid bringing up that difficult subject. You might not speak truth into someone's life if there's a chance that you might not be understood. Better yet, if you want to avoid conflict, you can move away from everybody. Move, move to Montana. Move to another, country, uh, a, 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 another county where it's more rural, and so there won't be conflict there. If you have trouble at work, now we can telecommute and just not have conflict at home. We can just get along. The key to this way of life is avoidance, isolation. But James tells us we know we're still going to have conflict because conflict comes from within our hearts. Conflict and sin and passions are at war within us. So the pursuit of peace cannot be defined as merely the absence of conflict because we're never going to be away from that. We also sometimes use a phrase when we discuss salvation the phrase is cheap grace, cheap grace. Now, cheap grace is the incorrect, unbiblical preaching that forgiveness can be granted by God with the absence of repentance, that he just gives forgiveness even if a sinner is not repentant. I think we can also wrongly pursue a form of cheap peace. 
cheap peace is brought about. It's related to the avoidance of conflict, but cheap peace is brought about when conflict is avoided at all costs, even if truth must be ignored. Cheap peace is not real. It's very shallow. It can be broken through awkwardness. It can be uh, a relationship can easily be shattered if there's just cheap peace. Cheap peace enters through the door of telling someone to their face, oh, honey, don't worry about that. I didn't even think about that. And it sits in the back room of the house of, I cannot believe what she said. I do not want to be around a person like that. There is a facade of peace, but the reality in the heart is bitterness and enmity. On the other hand, real peace is costly. Real peace may require pain and suffering to work through. And we are called, I want to show you today from Scripture, we are called to making this costly peace because, as we will see, God making peace in our lives. God, God's peace that he grants to us was very costly. Peace is also not appeasement. Peace is not appeasement. I trust many of us studied world history in high school. And we know the great prime minister of uh, Great Britain, Winston Churchill. He was famous for many things. His speeches, which inspired a people, his ever-present cigar, his face like a bulldog and his determination like a bulldog, his V for victory hand signal. But you may not think as readily of his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain. When Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich of Germany were coming to power before the World War II, they sought to annex Austria. This, um, the government of Austria pled for help from Great Britain. Um, they could not militarily stand against this invasion. Chamberlain thought that Hitler, although he was erratic and a hothead, he might be part of a stable Europe if the other countries in Europe kind of granted him some of the former territories that belonged to Germany throughout history. So they, they thought that if we let him have Austria, he'll, be, he'll play well with others. He'll, he'll be part of a stable Europe if we let him annex slash invade Austria. So Great Britain stood by as Germany invaded Austria in 1938. Although Chamberlain did make a reprimanding speech in Hitler's direction from Parliament, um, I'm not sure how much that bothered Hitler. After invading Austria, Hitler turned his attention to Czechoslovakia. And Hitler first said he only wanted part of Czechoslovakia, the German um, ethnic part, the Sudetenland. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. But soon his demands grew to include all of Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain had a series of meetings with Hitler and went away feeling each time as though the, uh, Hitler was done with his occupying of other European countries. He met with him one final famous time in Munich and arranged terms for Hitler to invade annex Czechoslovakia, but to promise to do so with minimal violence. In a private meeting in Munich, Chamberlain and Hitler met together, and Chamberlain produced a piece of paper um, that agreed that Germany and Great Britain would not go to war with each other. And Hitler signed the paper. And uh, after Hitler signed that paper, history shows that one of his aides in the, government, in the German government was very concerned that Hitler had signed that. And Hitler told him, that piece of paper is worthless. Chamberlain went back to London, and he made the famous speech where he says, we have achieved peace in our time. Peace in our time. 
and he was lauded and he was uh, for, for achieving peace in Germany because everyone was concerned about uh, Germany. Less than one year later, Germany invaded Poland. And Great Britain had to go to war because they had an agreement with Poland to help protect them. And that's when the World War, World war II really started going. And as we know, the true goals for Nazi Germany became clear. And country after country, they sought to invade. And sadly, Chamberlain today is best known for his foreign policy called appeasement. He thought to appease Hitler. He sought to appease him by giving him some of his demands and hoping that he would, would not pursue further. Peace, true peace, is not what Chamberlain said. He did not achieve peace in his time. Peace is not appeasement. Now, we may not be able to identify with a world war, but we may be able to identify with spending time with extended family in a visit. Is there not perhaps a spirit of appeasement in many of us where we may ignore or concede or withhold from speaking truth, even if we speak it with love, we, we do these things to appease our visitors so that we can get through the week or the days of the visit. Now, I'm not saying that it's go to wartime when, when family visits. I am saying that all of us deal with uh, issues that sometimes we ignore, sometimes we appease, sometimes we don't speak truth to someone Maybe even if it's well-meaning, we may apologize for something when we did no wrong and when actually apologizing causes the other person to continue in sin. Appeasement is part of all of us, but it is not making peace, and it gains no real peace. There is also no real peace without truth, as I've alluded to in, in my examples. In, in recent months, if you read and follow blogs and larger evangelicalism throughout the, our country, there is a real controversy, or I would say a lack of peace among leading, some leading pastors. And these are men whose, whose preaching I've heard in person, whose books I've read, um, whose conferences I've attended. Um, in the wake, for many of us, of emerging from a militant, unbiblical fundamentalism that may be legalistic, many evangelicals like us can also err by denying the need for truth and blurring the lines that biblical truth may draw. If there are professing Christians like T.D. Jakes who preach the prosperity gospel, where you name it and claim it, where God promises that all Christians are going to be rich, or a, a preacher who preaches an incorrect view of the Trinity, are we bound by this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, to not call attention to their error? If someone who's preaching false doctrine will not be turned by winsome biblical discussion that's offered in love, are we bound to endorse their ministry and call them brother and honor them as men of God? No, we are not. We are called to separate from false teachers. And in this in instance, calling for peace without truth is not biblical. John Calvin said, courteousness should not degenerate into compliance so as to lead us to flatter the vices of men for the sake of preserving peace. To lead us to flatter the vices of men for the sake of preserving peace. Now let me step aside and say I am not in any way endorsing these rabid watchdog discernment websites that seem to delight 
and trying to find error in other Christians. Like, all they do is live to point out, not really a Christian. Says he's a Christian, but not. I mean, they have a, a, a spirit that, that we might find within us that seems to find the greatest delight in, in uh, knocking down other believers. Um, this obsession with seeking out error to condemn for the purpose of condemning and not seeking error to correct gently and shepherd in love, this is, again, a perversion of the gospel, and I believe it tears the church apart. But I am saying that without truth being spoken, there is no real peace. There is no biblical peace without truth. So peace is not the absence of conflict. It is not appeasement. It is not the hiding of truth and the acceptance of error. Peacemaking may require working through conflict. Peacemaking can be costly. Peacemaking requires speaking truth and love. But peacemaking leads to reunion. It leads to unity and reconciliation and forgiveness. And ultimately, God uses peacemaking for evangelism. So a short definition of what is peace is not that short. There's three parts. Peace with God, peace with others, and peace within ourselves. Peace with God, peace with others, and peace within ourselves. And just a brief uh, word on each of those. Peace with God is made for us through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice on the cross allows us to have peace with others, described in the Scripture as unity. This peace is the presence of uh, living in harmony, living in understanding, having goodwill between people. So peace with God is made for us through the work of Jesus Christ. We'll go into that in a little more detail in, in a moment. This sacrifice on the cross allows us to have peace with others. But peace within yourself, the third part of peace, cannot be achieved outside of God. It is a byproduct of righteousness and holiness. This internal peace only comes from being reconciled to God through His Son, receiving His righteousness and the power to resist sin and obeying what God commands. Let's go deeper into peacemaking by looking at our motivation for peacemaking. Our motivation for peacemaking. Now, it's very clear that throughout Scripture, God desires that His people will demonstrate and seek peace. This, this word peace is mentioned many times, and it's very um, illuminating to see the context in which uh, the pursuit of peace is mentioned. I'm just going to read a few verses very quickly. You can jot down the references. Um, Psalm 34, 12 through 14. Psalm 34, 12 through 14. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says, If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In Hebrews twelve fourteen, the author says, Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So why is it so important? Besides these directives, besides the fact that Scripture says, seek peace, pursue peace, make sure as far as it depends on you that you can live peaceably with all, why is it important? The very best way to put out the fires of conflict in our life and in the world around us is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is within this gospel that we also find our driving and overwhelming motivation for peacemaking. Similar to the last few weeks, we show mercy because we have been shown mercy. We have the blessing of seeing God because God first cleanses our heart and makes us pure. And today we see that we can wage peace, we can make peace, because peace has been made for us already. It's very simple and wonderful. Christ is our example for peacemaking. Christ is the original peacemaker. Once again, do this frequently, but even as I'm speaking, re-preach the gospel, review the gospel in your head, and see the theme of making peace. So we know that God created man by the power of his word, and then because of mankind's sin, because of our sin, there is conflict that could not be resolved between God and sinful man. As the reading from Ephesians 2 stated, we were once far from God. We had a dividing wall of hostility between God and us. But Jesus, through his blood, came and took that wall down. Jesus, through his blood, has brought us near by shedding his blood on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin. He came and preached peace to those who were far and those who were near. He reconciled us to God, so we are now fellow citizens and we are members of the household of God. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Just like I said that the resolution of conflict for us may be costly. The pursuit of righteousness, the, the pursuit of reconciliation can be costly. It's not painless. God's peacemaking, similarly, or as an example for us, God's peacemaking was costly. It was painful. It was not something pursued in a trivial manner. But because of God's great love for us, he made this peace between himself and us through his Son. In the second half of Matthew 5, 9, it's important for us to note this phrase, they shall be called sons of God. They shall be called sons of God. There's great meaning in this phrase. When we see a boy who acts like his dad, we say that that boy is definitely the son of whoever. We say that's a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I don't know who made these up, but uh, there's other bits of inane wisdom. Uh, I remember when we lived in the south they would say that, that that boy favors you. Like, no, he likes his mom too. No, favor is a, uh, it's, it's an expression in the South. In like manner, when Christians exhibit this ministry of reconciliation, when Christians become peacemakers, other people, believers and unbelievers alike, can see this and can identify those peacemaking Christians as sons of God. Now, the word sons here does not mean men only. It's translated in the Greek in the masculine tense, in the masculine form, but it's a specific use that describes in that time a male who is receiving the adoption and inheritance privileges according to Roman law. So as Paul is using it in this passage, um, as Paul uses it in other passages, this same word 
The term refers to the status of all Christians, both men and women, who having been adopted into God's family, now enjoy all the privileges, the obligations, and the inheritance rights of God's children. So not only does this phrase indicate that all believers are to be peacemakers, both men and women, but that we are identified as God's sons through our peacemaking. John 13.35 puts it most plainly, By this shall all, men, all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me camp on this verse for a while. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples. It's, this is not my notes. It's, it's common sometimes to say that, that we need to distinguish ourselves from the world through our attire or um, uh, maybe our behavior. And it's true that we are to pursue holiness and that will distinguish us. But we are not to seek out a pious, holier-than-thou approach of um, distinguishing ourselves from the world to know that they, are, they have not yet attained the level of righteousness that we have. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous on the face because the righteousness that we have was imputed to us through Christ's work on the cross. Uh, people will know that you're different by the love you have for one another. People should know that we're different, not by us saying, I don't do that because that's wrong. And by the way, you're really wrong for doing that. People should know us by the love we have for one another. And as we're going to see in peacemaking, the love we have for them, resolving conflict in a, in a supernatural way that the gospel empowers us to do. That's how people will know us. They will identify us as the sons of God. Our love for one another our peacemaking is an act of God-ordained evangelism. God wants us to demonstrate his love for us by demonstrating an active pursuit of peace. The power of the gospel in the lives of real people who struggle, the power of the gospel is revealed to observers through growing unity, harmony, and stability in our marriages, relationships, and churches. When Christians respond to conflict in a countercultural, gospel-empowered way, others will take notice and provide a real, this provides a real, not just a, a theory-based or a book-based preaching, but it provides a real example of God's transforming love. An unbeliever may come and hear us preach and say, that's all good and well. I understand that you're preaching from the Bible. I don't really believe it that much. It's a holy book. It's, it's a book to be honored. But when they see in the life of one of us real change and real behavior that is so strange and countercultural, they will ask, why do you do that? Why, why, how can you forgive that person? How can you act that way? There is a certain convicting irony in that sometimes the world may know the church primarily as a place of conflict. The world can see the church as a place of conflict. They can say, you know, there go those Christians again. They can, um, they can see the church business meetings as a, a place of major conflict, even if they don't attend the church. It's true that, it is true that the unbelievers in our world may be looking for, to knock down Christians because they don't want to face the fact that what the Bible says may be true. They may not want to face the fact that they were created by a God who is holy and they have an obligation to be reconciled to him. They may seek to delude themselves into believing there's no God, but, 
But I think that more commonly Christians give ample reason for making people think that the Christian life is one of conflict. I remember my experiences in playing in uh, church basketball leagues back in North Carolina. Um, played in um, a summer league and then a, a fall league. So about nine months of the year we played uh, basketball once a week. And these were church playing other churches. Um, uh, the church only leagues, and, and we didn't we didn't have like mixed ch- uh, leagues where there were churches and then like a club or something. They were only churches, usually Baptist. Church-only leagues had more conflict, more turmoil, more redneckish behavior, and more frustrated has-beens or never-wers doing battle with each other. It was the highlight of the week for many of us, as if we would prove ourselves or prove to ourselves that we could no longer do what we once thought we could. Referees were known to dread, and this is without hyperbole, referees were known to dread uh, officiating in church leagues, and they would refuse sometimes after a, a season saying, this is it, I'm only doing like the parks and rec, I'm not doing the church league anymore. What a sad anti-testimony this was. And not, I'm not advocating that we hide our real sin from unbelievers. Church is full of sinners. So there's no one that's too much of a sinner to be in church. It's important to be real, but uh, this anti-testimony brought shame to the name of Christ. Christians should be specially motivated, and Christians are especially enabled to make peace. Our peacemaking should be motivated because God commands it. Our peacemaking should be motivated because God blesses those who make peace, because God says it's an identifying mark of someone who is his disciple. But the greatest reason that we have to make peace is that it is an outpouring of the gospel at work in our lives. We are recipients of the great peace that was made for us at Calvary when Christ made peace for us through his blood. This enables and empowers us to live peaceably with all men. Now, this is more than a suggestion. This is not a, if you have the right type of personality, go ahead and make peace. This is a call to discipleship. We should make peace internally, make peace with fellow believers, make peace with unbelievers because of what God has done for us. We should make peace because we are specially equipped to do so by our Father, uh, by God our Father. John brought us as a uh, Civil War era Baptist pastor, and he said, there is no more godlike work, there is no more godlike work to be done in this world than peacemaking. So this is our motivation for peacemaking, the gospel which has transformed us. Aubrey, would you put up Colossians 3, 12 through 15, please? Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if... One has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. 
So let us now turn our attention to some examples of peacemaking, some models of peacemaking. It is my goal in this section not to provide... How's that? It is my goal not to provide a comprehensive list of every facet of life that must be corrected. Instead, I trust that as we talk about some areas and relationships in our lives, each of us may be pricked in our hearts in different ways and brought under conviction on some area of our walk with, on this earth where God wants us to change, to better glorify Him. I think a common misapplication of peacemaking might be uh, uh, a fireman's approach or in the offices that we have here, every high-tech company has an ERT, an emergency response team, that is ready with equipment to respond to conflict. We, we don't want to get our fire extinguishing equipment of verses or key sayings or, or checklist of what to do and then whip them out whenever there's a fire. We want to resolve conflict properly before it occurs. We are to make peace. Making peace is not a... Uh, the Beatitude does not say, blessed are those who respond to conflict properly. It said, blessed are those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's an active, proactive um, action. How's that? Active, proactive action. We're supposed to do it ahead of time. First, recognizing that conflict starts within us, as James says. The passions at war within us cause us to quarrel and to war. Recognize that we should live in such a way that conflict is, should be diffused before it happens. Peacemaking, instead of being like a fireman pulling out his equipment when there's a fire, peacemaking is more a way of living in, in a way that it's a grid in which we operate rather than a toolkit that we pull out whenever there is trouble. <clears throat> if you just let your mind go and think of our church, think of our families here, think of individuals in our church, I don't think you'll have to to go very far before you can recognize areas where there might be conflict. Uh, common areas in our life where there may be conflict. There is marriage. We, we know there's no conflict at all when two sinners say, I do, and live together. There is a family dynamic, either as a son or a daughter or as a father or mother. There's ample time for conflict in our roles as employees or employers, as managers, supervisors, team members, uh, independent contractors that deal with, uh, with other businesses. We are also neighbors, landowners. We are customers. We are buyers and sellers. We are we're even virtual buyers and sellers, and there's room for conflict there. I had great angst over the last four weeks on a transaction on eBay. Um, but thankfully, God kept me from losing my cool and whipping out the negative rating on them. They worked it out. We are members of a church community, and we submit humbly to each other for love, accountability, and mutual edification. We are part of our communities wherever we live. We are part of the state of Oregon. We're part of our country and part of this world. In each of these areas of our lives, there is conflict and discord and a lack of peace. There's a parachurch organization, Peacemaker Ministries, which is based in Idaho or Montana, one of, one of those states to the east of us. 
They provide a whole lot of resources to churches, to families, to individuals. And they suggest these four attitudes for Christians to adopt in waging peace in our lives. So these are four G's, four G points. First point is glorify God. Second, get the log out. Third is gentle restoration. And fourth is grace-filled reconciliation. Glorifying God. This first attitude in approaching any situation is based on 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Focusing question for us in any situation, and a good focusing question for us as we live our lives, even in conflict or in times of triumph or happiness, how can I please and honor the Lord in this situation? especially entering a time of conflict. How can I please and honor the Lord in this situation? We can glorify God by entering all situations in our life with that as our main focus, by seeking to trust Him, by seeking to obey Him and imitate uh, Christ as our peacemaker. So first of all, an attitude of glorifying God. Secondly, an attitude of getting the log out. Now this refers to Matthew 7, 5 where Jesus admonishes us to check ourselves before we correct someone else, to check before we go to remove and point out a speck in someone's eye, to check to make sure we do not have a beam or a log in our eye. Sometimes that log in our lives may be just our attitude of being overly critical, of being hypersensitive. No doubt, throughout your life, Throughout my life, there have been times where I have been looking for someone to fail. I have been watching them. And I am, I would never say it, but I am overjoyed when they fail and then I can go correct them. And I do not correct in love. I correct in an effort to condemn. That, that's so wrong. That's such a fail. Christ calls us to check for the log in our own eye first. It's also good to get in the frequent habit of having seeking out, seeking out a trusted friend to identify sinful words and actions in your own life. Now, it takes a step to say, if you see me do anything wrong, you have my, my permission at any time to correct me. To make that statement once in a friendship is a good step. But I will say that, um, as we talked about in community group, and, and Doug Isaacson said, you have to sell that. And I, I know what he means. You have to actively seek that out. You can't just say that one time and say, if you see a problem in my life, tell me. And then live the rest of your life defensively so that every, your friends realize, mm, don't tell them. Um, you have to sell it. You have to say, can we have coffee? And then kind of just, um, you can even think back to a time where you weren't sure what you did was was godly where how you responded was in a way that honored god and you can say in this situation when i dealt with this person and i know you were watching or you were listening did i glorify god in what i said how can i adjust um did i show a sinful attitude because i think i may have and that's where you pave you you plow the field of like that friendship and say you can speak truth to me it's going to be hard but you don't just do that blanket one time only uh, come to me if you have any problems you sell it, you live it, and you will be strengthened in your friendship. And it's, it's a good way to keep the big logs out of your eye, you know, uh, to, to develop that relationship. 
Sometimes we may need help identifying an idol in our lives that is, that is uh, creating conflict. Remember that conflict comes from within our hearts, not only because of other people. So seek out the root cause of why you are, why there is conflict. Seek it out first in your life and seek the help of others to be honest with yourself and with God. So the first G is glorify God. The second G is get the log out. The third G is gentle restoration. Gentle restoration. All too often, I dare say, that believers, especially veteran, well-read believers, will pull out the Matthew 18 club that says, go and show him his fault. That is an awesome verse because you can just go after somebody because the Bible says to. This verse in isolation is too often misused to serve a non-peacemaking purpose. This verse is not meant to be read in isolation. There are many other passages, and even in the rest of Matthew 18, there are many other passages that talk about shepherding each other. In, in Galatians, Paul says to restore gently, to restore gently. It is also wise to check our hearts before we go to another person even in gentleness, because the Bible often speaks of overlooking minor offenses, Proverbs 19, overlooking minor offenses. We should ask ourselves, is this conflict, is this issue something that really dishonors God? Is this something that is hurting others or something that is hurting the church body? Or perhaps is it just, is it just something that I wish to condemn because it's not the way I would do things? Is my heart's attitude one of anger or one of gentleness. If I can't wait to confront somebody about something, I should check my heart. As should we all. If you must go to another brother or sister, go in much humility. Bathe that situation in prayer. Seek out the right venue for speaking on it. Choose your words carefully. Be sure to listen. Be sure to listen very carefully because uh, you may be mistaken. And recognize this is very important. Recognize your limits. Only God can change people. But go in a spirit of gentleness and love and seek restoration. The fourth G in the attitudes that we should have is grace-filled reconciliation. Go and be reconciled. And this speaks of forgiveness. Again, God is our example. God does not hold our past confessed sins against us. There is not a verse in the Bible that says, once bitten, twice shy. There is not a verse in the Bible that says, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. If God said what we often say in our hearts, or maybe even say to our friends and spouse, um, I forgive him, but I never want anything to do with him again. Where would we be if God said that? Forgiveness is a process. It's not an instantaneous event. So seek restoration and pray that God will give the grace to forgive. God can enable us to forgive in extraordinary ways. And the more we forgive, the more we reconcile, the more we seek to make peace, the more that our character is changed by God's Spirit. We should see conflict not as something to be avoided, but as an opportunity for God to use it for good. I have some examples that just came to mind 
Absolutely none of them apply to me, and I've never encountered any of these. I speak from theory only. But these are areas that may need peacemaking, or uh, if if your community group wants to discuss these, they may these may happen to some of you, not me. Um, this situation may need peacemaking. A tired father at the end of a workday comes home to a tired, irritable family where perhaps children may not have responded in redeeming ways with, with uh, their mother. And so you have people that are, all the dad wants is like some quiet and comfort. And uh, there's no peace. There's, uh, no one's there to make peace. Everyone's there to, to uh, for different idols. I think as a father, um, as a theoretical father, I might seek convenience and comfort and just want quiet. And, and the peace will come uh, not real peace, it'll be a shallow peace, but peace will come um, for for uh, me as that father. Perhaps there's an extended family where there is a lack of peace because family members do not agree on music standards in the church or dress standards, and there's an equa- equating of that with a key doctrines. Like you would, perhaps there are, I know there are parents represented here who do not approve of our pursuit of glorifying God through our music and our preaching and our attire. And it can be equated to doctrine of the Trinity or or the doctrine of justification and treated in the same way as if we had forsaken that which we had been taught. This is an example that needs peacemaking, and I don't offer any easy answers. It's something that can create and has created angst in my heart um, with my extended family. But there's a lack of peace. There's many other things. There's avoidance and appeasement, but perhaps that's something that may be, that may be uh, too painful to discuss, but uh, maybe that's something that we, we can pray about and seek how God would uh, teach us to find peace there. There may be shunning or judging of others within the church body or within, uh, within our Facebook communities for their practices of different, uh, different parenting techniques. There may be marriage discussions where husbands and wives find time to talk about finances when the bills come. And when, when a husband says, how many times did you go to Starbucks last month? Um, wives may have, may, may have reason to say, how much were those tickets to the Blazer game? Um, we we seem to talk about, let's keep those elbows in, okay? We seem to talk about finances when the bills come and to seek to, to, to find blame. That's a time to make peace, to, to check our hearts, um, especially when both uh, husband and wife are believers and are seeking to honor God and seeking to glorify God. There There must be a way to speak on finances in a marriage peaceably. If you figured it out, tell me. I joke. Um, we may react defensively. We may react defensively, and I think this is where we need to develop our our, our muscles or develop uh, underdevelop our reflexes to be defensive when someone would come and say, uh, "When you when you said, you know, someone comes to us in love and gentleness and says, when you did this, it came across this way, and we get defensive. And and although we may answer them face to face in the right way, we go and we're like, what gives him the right to ask?'" 
me that? Doesn't he know who I am? Or doesn't she know who I am? And so we, we need to develop that peacemaking grid that I talked about, to live in a peacemaking manner so that we are not reacting defensively when someone who loves us wants to correct um, because God has laid it on their heart. Many other examples, and, and I hope that in community group we, we may apply some things. I feel like I've been working on the foundation of why we, sh- why we can be peacemakers. The great example of the peace made for us by Jesus on the cross. But real life is where we are to exhibit peacemaking so that others see it and say we are the sons of God. I hope, I pray, not enough, but I pray that God may choose to work in our church in this area of peacemaking because it's an area where we all have needs. The church is the primary venue for peacemaking, as evidenced in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul urges Christians to settle their legal issues within the church. In recent weeks, I have heard some in our body talk of how we are learning to live in community. Not just in recent weeks, it's been a theme, and it is always good for my heart to hear that. It, I, I see that. It, living in community does not come naturally but there's a sweet peace in seeing how God is growing us and helping us make steps of growth in this area. I would like to see God work further in our lives, in our community, to have us to be committed to respond to conflict in a way that demonstrates the life-changing power of the gospel. I would pray that God would build within our church community a culture of peacemaking. I would like to see God work in such a way that we highly value relationships and we work hard to restore them and to strengthen them. As elders, we need to provide a consistent example of valuing relationships and nurturing them. We need to exemplify diffusing conflict before it occurs. We need to exemplify resolving conflict with forgiveness and restoration when it does occur. We need to teach and equip each other for peacemaking as a culture in our church. And I hope that you will join me in praying to that end. I believe, I believe maybe that it could become a key part of our church's identity and our culture as God wills and as we seek to have him work in our midst. The beautiful end of the story of peacemaking comes back to the end of the verse where Jesus says, we will be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We will be called the sons of God. God's gospel power is revealed through his people as those people act as those who wage peace. Scripture also puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, our last passage, Aubrey, as ambassadors of reconciliation. Let's look at this passage as we close. I need to turn to it because that's slightly different. 2 Corinthians five eighteen. Let me back up to 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, 
We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. May God build us up in our desire to make peace so that he might be glorified and that sinners might be reconciled unto him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would not go from this message and try to put on the garb or the uniform of an ambassador of reconciliation or a maker of peace, but that you would start by, in a way that perhaps we have never experienced before, impress upon us the enormity of the peace that you made through your Son so that you and we could be reconciled to each other. The peace that was made for us as sinful people at the cross enables us to forgive much, enables us to overlook much and to love and to shepherd gently. Everything comes from that. We pray that our peacemaking, whatever it looks like in, in the life of in our lives and in the life of this church, that it would come forth from a genuine heart that has been transformed by the gospel. Please help us to dwell on that and then to respond in obedience to things that you may have laid on our heart through this message. We thank you for this passage and for this series. Thank you for this uh, church that loves to hear preaching from your word. And I pray that you will change us to become more like your son. And I thank you for putting us in this community together. And I pray that you'll work and that our relationships will become more sweet even as we do experience conflict through the, through the coming years together, as we no doubt will, but that our, our relationships will be strengthened and that most of all people in our community would see through our lives the demonstration of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.